This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. What a great privilege to have been here for the graduation this morning. And then when I went to the book table to grab a few of the books uh, to bring here to share with you, I noticed that there had been a number that had already signed up. I think maybe 10 or 12 people this morning signed up. But I do want to take a few moments to share the school and the importance of Bible training. Bible training is not some new concept. Uh, It goes to the, the Great Commission. Jesus said, make disciples. He didn't say make decisions, make church members. He said, make disciples. The word disciple means a student. And uh, the problem with the, the modern day church is we, we have made church members, but not even very good church members. M- many are unfaithful, uninvolved. They merely attend church on a Sunday morning. I call them Sunday morning religious deadheads, thinking that that little thing that they do once a week is spirituality. And uh, they just attend in a form of godliness. They don't know the power of God. They don't know the call of God. They don't know the word of God. They select what promises suit them, but most of the Bible is just there. They don't celebrate the word. They don't meditate in the word. They don't know the word. If they had to stand before the devil and say, it is written, they don't even know where it is written. They've not memorized the word. They've not meditated in the word. They merely just hold on to one or two promises that for God so loved the world and there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun and godliness, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness, a couple of their favorite scriptures and then that's about it. And they live shallow lives and they wonder why they are unfruitful. But his disciples abide in the word, they do the word, they know the word, they meditate in the word and their lives are are successful, they produce. And so I have purposed by the grace of God to develop curriculum. Uh, From my early 20s, I forged my first Bible school, wrote that curriculum. And then my second school, which was a missions training center uh, to raise up missionaries short-term and long-term for Africa. And then my third Bible school, which was really a a development of the first school, but I took it a lot further. Then when I came to America, I wrote this curriculum that is the foundation for the school of ministry, 15 books. I actually wrote 20 books in one year, and now that has gone to nations. We've got over 200,000 students. We graduate about 100, maybe 200 every week. I, I just get a stack that I have to sign digitally put that seal on every time I come back home, graduating. I'm, right now we're training about 15,000 pastors, 15,000 rural pastors in Africa and India. That's huge. My university, I have about 200 degree students. My online school, about 1,500 students. So in the last look, it grows every day. People are enrolling. We have an online school for Africa. We have an online school in UK, and I have an online school here in in America. Soon it will be in Spanish, Hindi, Telugu. We have got the the back work all done 
for this to go to the nations in many languages. Hallelujah. And so, um, when you join the Harvest School of Ministry, you're not just joining a little school with 20 students or 25 students. You're joining with the potential of a million world changes. Something huge. When I wrote that curriculum, I had no idea. I mean, this was my first school. I was writing, and those who will remember, I was doing morning meetings from 10 o'clock to about 12. We'd go and have lunch. Then I'd go to my hotel and I'd write from, say, 3 o'clock to 5.30, quickly shower, get to church, yeah, at 6.30. We'd, we'd do revival until 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. Then I'd write for another two, three hours, sleep for two, three hours, and then get up and start the day with the, with the and I wrote 15, 20 books in one year. And uh, what I didn't know is that I wrote it in my mind for America. I had no idea it would go into Central South America, UK, back into Africa in many languages. I just signed up now this week, uh, last week in Zambia, uh, three new languages. We've already got it into nine, but we're doing Swahili now and uh, two languages in Zambia that are affecting whole tribes. And uh, Ethiopia, two, three languages, it's just exploding. I can't even keep up. But I had no idea when I wrote that, that it would go with a kingdom culture. I, I, I thought I was writing it for the U.S., but in the spirit, I was writing for the nations. We are in India, and a peasant working in the rice paddies of India or Vietnam or Cambodia getting the exact same training as you right in this place. And they growing. The pastors, I, I reached one pastor in Goa. My son lives and works in Goa. And we launched a school in his church. He was so excited. He raised up 35 churches within one month to become extension schools. Because he saw just in his first few weeks, the power of God hit the church. Revival broke out. And um, things started happening, and he called all his friends. My ministry team didn't even promote it. He promoted it and called them in, and now it's just expanding even more. So I want to encourage you, if you have not gone through the, the Harvest School of Ministry, that you should prayerfully consider joining. You may say, well, it's a two-year commitment. Well, the disciples sat at the feet of Jesus for three years. You're getting away with one night a week for two hours in two years. It's nothing. You haven't have to leave your nets. You haven't left your wives, your husbands, and follow Jesus to study at His feet. You can get up in the morning, go to work. You have your, your family. You have your home. But you're giving two hours a week for two years, which is nothing. And then what's going to happen is you're going to graduate, but more than getting a diploma, your life is going to be fruitful in the Word. You heard the testimonies of those that were here this morning. I've done, in just the last few weeks, graduations in different parts of the world, and I hear the same stories every place I could. My cell phone is in 
the office, but I could switch it on and give you testimonies that are videoed of students in different parts of the world. And they're all saying the same thing, how they've grown in faith, in character, in anointing, in the knowledge of the Word. So I, I'm going to boldly present this, um, this school to you if you would like to sign up at the book table after the meeting, go put your name down. And um, I'm going to be praying for this school. This was my first school and certainly is not going to be my last school. Every week we're opening new schools. You we were saying in places, one country in Zimbabwe where I was born and grew up, have one apostolic church that has a thousand local churches in Zambia, Botswana, uh, South Africa, a thousand schools we're launching just in that one movement alone. Hallelujah. So when I say I've got 2,000 schools of ministry, we are training about 300 pastors every three months to launch yet another thousand just in one nation. When we get into India, 1.3 billion people. The church is less than 2%. That means over a billion people are going to a Christless eternity. We talk about the laborers of few. In the face of hostility, persecution, and suffering, we are launching schools on a daily basis. People say to me, what is God doing? He is positioning a people to be skilled in the Word to handle the last day's great revival before His return. That's what's happening. By enrolling in the school, you are aligning yourself with the purposes of God to be equipped, to be trained, to be skilled in the Word so that you can be a part of the last great move of God on planet earth before He returns. How many of you believe that the hour is short, that He is coming soon? Well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. He's not coming as soon as you think. There are still nations that are plunged in darkness. Uh, nations that are, are had, the word has not gone forth. I've had the privilege of going into regions and nations where I've been the first missionary, you know, where the gospel has never been preached. I've got to places where they've never heard the name of Jesus. And what a joy, what a privilege to go where witchcraft has dominated, ignorance, and gone in and shared the gospel in the power of God, and have seen witch doctors and chiefs and kings and leaders come to Christ. I was in Togo in a village where the king uh, received the gospel, and he called his entire kingdom. And in that one meeting, 2,000 souls were saved. But the village, the kingdom next door, they were still doing human sacrifices. I'm not talking about in the 1800s or the 17. This was in 2004. 2004. Voodoo practice. It was dark. But now we've launched a school there, launched a church there, and the gospel is going forth just with the same materials as we're teaching here. Isn't that powerful? So how many of you have not yet signed up to be a part of the school. Let me see your hands. I want, I want to pray for you. No, I want you to raise your hands. I want to pray for you. I'm going to ask God to speak to you tonight. Lord God, 
Would you speak to your people that they may hear your voice when you said, follow me to those men. I will make you fishers of men. You discipled them. You taught them. You trained them the kingdom and skills of ministry that you could entrust the future of mankind into their hands by the power of God. I pray, God, that you'd speak to your people and stir their hearts concerning being equipped and trained and skilled to handle the last day's harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor did a great job of promoting my book table. This book, well done, I do believe and I agree with you, it's brilliant, even though I wrote it myself. (laughs) The reason it's brilliant is not because I'm a great writer, but because this book has changed so many lives. The amount of testimonies. Everyone wants Jesus to say to them, well done. Am I right? I mean, what's the alternative? Depart from me, you wicked and lazy servant. I mean, everyone wants Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But he doesn't owe you a well done just because you show up at church every now and again, Easter, Christmas, weddings, guest speakers, ordinations. You get well done because you did something well. You did it faithfully, and you did it with a servant heart. Not every servant got the well done. You realize that. In the parable of the talents, not everyone got well done. In the parable of the miners, not everyone got well done. Only those that did well got well done. I believe God wants to raise up a generation that is going to do well, that is going to live excellent lives, that are going to carry the Word and the power of God and make a difference in their generation. This book will challenge and inspire you concerning that. This book, Capture, uh, you have purchased men, uh, you have purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is about capturing the heart of God for the nations. Every Christian must be a missionary spirited believer. If you are filled with the Spirit of God, It's more than just operating in the gifts of the Spirit and speaking in other tongues. The Holy Spirit is a soul-winning spirit. Thank you. But the Holy Spirit is also a missionary spirit because the gospel is to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Many Christians don't make world missions a priority. Yet it's the priority of God. The gospel was to the ends of the earth. And for that to happen, the strength of missions is the strength of the local church. If the local church is not missions-minded, the missionaries we send out will not be properly supported. They'll not get the job done, both prayerfully, financially, skills, abilities. The strength of world harvest depends on the leadership, and the membership to be engaged in World Harvest. This is a devotional study that will bring challenge to your life concerning your obligation to the ends of the earth. This book, Bold, I smiled when I put this verse on the cover. The wicked flee when no one pursues. And I think of all the hours I spent running with no one pursuing. I just ran. And it says that the wicked run when no one pursues. Every jogger, every marathon runner, 
is running with no one pursuing them. You're called wicked. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. I was on safari a few weeks ago in Kenya, and I came up to this lioness with her cubs, and um, as I drove up in the vehicle, she, and well, I, I wasn't the driver, I had a Maasai driver and guide, I was standing there with my camera, and this lioness came charging for the vehicle, and I just kept clicking, she came from about the middle of the church, and she ran right up to the edge of the vehicle. I got great shots of her, and she stopped just short of me. I was just as bold as her. I didn't move. I didn't flinch. I thought, what a way to go. (laughs) I was bold as a lion, and she was bold as a lion, and my boldness was stronger than her boldness because one day I was attacked by a shark, and um, my board was attacked. I got out, and I fixed it up with the best of my ability, a brand new board, and then I paddled back out. And the guy said to me, why are you going back out? You've just been attacked by a shark. I said, listen, what's the odds of being attacked twice on the same day? (laughs) And then I said, I'm a child of the Most High God, and I was given dominion over these creatures, and I command that thing to go and to stop trying to attack my board. (laughs) I'm bold in the Lord. But you know, last days believers better be bold, because how many of you have felt the persecution, the suffering, the resistance, demonic, as well as the spirit of the age? We have got a media that is totally against the gospel. You can be any religion in this country, let forget about Africa, forget about India, forget about being in a Muslim nation where persecution is at the worst it has ever been from the early church, more people died, over 160,000 saints died last year, persecuted, put to death in Islamic nations, North Korea, China, and India. Do you realize that we are living in perilous times? But in America, there is resistance to the gospel. You go to a liberal college, you can be any cult, any religion, and you can wear their symbolism and get away with it. Try carry a Bible. Try and even share the Word of God with your professor and watch how you'll be penalized in a nation that says, in God we trust. We better fight for this country to be liberated from this perverse, manipulating spirit that is being proclaimed through social media and through Uh, the news channels, these corrupt channels. I tell you, it's not just Donald Trump that is making a stand and calls the media corrupt. I started speaking about it long before Donald Trump went public. And I'm telling you that this thing is, is, uh, is we've got to fight back. We've got to pray for our nation. We better be bold in prayers. We better be bold in our faith because the pressure is on against the saints of America. You know why I believe in this great country? Because whatever happens in the United States affects the world tomorrow. Something happens here today. Something can happen in other nations. It does not stop the world, but when something happens in America, it stops the world. When this nation is successful, the world is successful. Do you realize the power we have 
just in finances, in military, in politics. Forget about that side. In the spirit, there is something about the American church that has affected the world. Our faith, our vision is very, very powerful. But this nation is backsliding. And we who are strong, we better become stronger still because we've got to bring a revival back into this nation. I have been a revivalist for many years, not only in this nation but other nations. And I'm telling you, we better get ready for a fresh move of God. Can you say amen? Bold. We've got to be bold. That's available. And uh, your pastor for the leaders has asked that that become your next reading assignment. And so you can get that at the end of the service. I want to get into the Word of God. I have about an hour with you in the Word, then I'm going to pray. And um, I want to share today, go with me in your Bibles. If you have a digital Bible, or you're going to turn on the pages, or you're going to read it on the screen, I want you to go with me to um, Acts chapter 1, for starters. And... Um, how many of you know the main events that took place in the life and the ministry of Jesus? Let me help you. Number one, it was his birth. How many of you know his birth was a major world event? When Jesus was born, as you know, they put to death every child. Why? Because they wanted to, the, the devil wanted to stop. This great birth, this king, this star that signified his birth. The next great event in the ministry of Jesus was when he was baptized by his cousin, John, in the River Jordan, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and his ministry was launched as a man anointed with the Holy Spirit. That was a great event, and it was short-lived, about three years, and then came the next great event in the life and the ministry of Jesus when he was crucified, when he hung poised between hell and heaven on earth, taking the sins of the world upon himself and satisfying, satisfying all the claims of justice and being able to say on behalf of all mankind, it is finished. And he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And his blood speaks louder than our guilt, our frailty, our weakness our carnality, and has declared us to be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that Jesus went to the cross and settled the debt that we could never pay? Great event. They buried him, and we sung about it in a borrowed tomb, and three days later he arose from the dead, and, uh, and that was a great event. And... Um, then the next and the last great event that is acknowledged in the Gospels and in the book of Acts was His ascension. So we are going to speak about just before His ascension. And go with me to um, Acts 1 and verse 4. And being assembled together with them, His disciples, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Even though he had been with them for three years 
and it taught them the culture of heaven, the culture of the kingdom versus just their tradition and the law. You understand his ministry was to reveal the Father and to reveal the culture of eternity. They, the disciples, were still thinking he is going to be like David and he's going to restore the kingdom. I believe Judas thought he could help accelerate the process and uh, get this kingdom going. He expected also a natural kingdom. And they weren't expecting a spiritual kingdom. They were wanting something to happen in their generation. And so they asked this question. And um, they had asked it before. Now, this is what he says. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put into his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1 8 is the pivotal verse, the pivotal verse of the entire book of Acts. It speaks about the empowerment of our lives to carry the word of God in the face of hostility, opposition, and violence, to be unflinching in the discharge of the heavenly commission that has come through Jesus Christ, not only to the apostles, to the disciples, but to every subsequent believer. This is our mandate to live spirit-filled lives so that we can carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. This must have been an awesome thing to see, to be a part of. Can you imagine watching Jesus, who's already freaked you out because he was dead, then he appears to you, you've touched him, you've seen him, He's come to you in different forms and appeared to you. And now, while he is speaking to you, he is lifted up in this cloud. If we were a part of that generation, we'd grab our iPhones and we'd click on and we'll be doing selfies and trying to capture that scene and post it on Facebook and get it out as quickly as possible. You'd say, this is the most awesome thing that I've ever seen happen. Similar to Elisha, seeing Elijah being caught up, Jesus has been taken up right before their very eyes. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Well, who were these two men? They were angelic beings that appeared in the form of men. Am I correct? And this is what <laughs> these angels said. To me, this is the funniest verse in the entire Bible. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Like they've just been freaked out. This is not a daily occurrence that people just drift up in a cloud to heaven. You could understand if this was something that happened occasionally. I live in Tampa, Florida, 
And when they had the space program, the shuttles going up, I would watch the computer, the NASA channel, and I'd get to the countdown, and then when it gets to the ignition blast off, I'd run outside because I could stand in my front yard, and I could actually watch that thing going up. From Tampa, I could watch, especially if it was a night launch, it was just a beautiful thing, and you could watch it going up. Just amazing. And here I am excited about a missile going up that's going to circle and go to a space station. That, that, you know, you just want to play the national anthem and salute the flag. It's just an amazing event. But in comparison, Jesus once, one time only, taken up into heaven, and they're standing gazing. When I watch that craft going, this is amazing. Man, you realize it was just like 120 years ago that man first flew. You understand? 120 years, we've already gone to the moon. We're sending spacecraft to Mars and different parts of the universe, and now we're putting people circling it's an amazing thing, but it pales in comparison to Jesus being caught up to the right hand of the Father. It is the most significant event, the birth, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And then these angels say to the disciples, why are you standing gazing up into heaven? Well, dude, this has never happened before. How do you walk away from that event? You know what I'm saying? I would stand there. Why did the angels make that statement? Read on. This same Jesus who was taken up from heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Why did they say, why are you standing here? Yes, Leon's expanded unpublished, unpublished translation from the Greek. You've watched him go up. Now get to Jerusalem. Get empowered because you've got a work to do until he returns. Don't stand here waiting for something to mystically take place. It's now time to put action to what he has told you to do. Many Christians are waiting for the return of the Lord with great expectation, but they don't realize that this gospel must be preached before He returns. They're standing, gazing, looking, waiting for His return, not realizing that we are affecting the return of the Lord, our lives. I've been doing research. It's not scientific. It's kind of like, which way does the wind blow? It's very unscientific, but I've done it for about the last six months. I go into churches and I ask this question, how many of you have been saved 20 years or longer? Let's do that little exercise, 20 years or longer. How many of you have been saved about 15 years? How many of you have been saved 10 years? How many have been saved less than five years? 
One, two, three. Mainly young people, a whole group there, a whole family. That's, that's pretty awesome. That's very good. Now, let me tell you something. Most churches that I've been to in the United States, when it gets to five years and less, it's about two people. We had about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight people in this church. So this is actually very good. All those candles representing is making a difference. But here's the thing. In the last five years, very few souls have been saved. Most of us have been saved 20 years or longer, 15 years or longer, 10 years, a handful, five years, minimal. That means in the last 10 years, the church has been pretty unfruitful when it comes to soul winning. Now, I said it's not scientific, but it's been pretty much wherever I've gone, a handful in the last 10 years have got saved. Most people that are shifting and joining churches are already born again. They're already water baptized. They're already filled with the Spirit. They're just shifting because of careers, because of different things that happen in churches. Churches are not growing through evangelism. We are growing through Christians moving from church to church. And that's not the biblical model. The biblical model is the Lord added daily to the church those who are being saved. I believe we should get ready for daily church growth. We spoke about this the last time I was here. We spoke about each one reach one. We could literally double the church every single year on the simple formula of if each Christian would become contagious with the gospel, infectious with the gospel, passion, vision for the harvest. And we just gave our time, our effort to pray and intercede for an opportunity just once a year to reach one soul and to bring them into a relationship called discipleship where we would disciple them. The first book in the Bible Institute is called Discovery. That book was written so that not only would they know the basic principles of faith, assurance of salvation, prayer, water baptism, baptism in the Spirit, uh, the authority of the believer, uh, the church, you understand, those simple, basic things. But it was actually written so that each student would take, during their two years, time to reach one soul a year and walk them through discovery, get them assimilated into the life of the church. Could you imagine if every student, say, call it 24 students, I think the last graduation was a 12 this time, that, that could you imagine growing by 12 families every year, that's 24 just from your Bible school, 48 from the last graduating class, how many was it before, 34 students, something like that, 68 students, just uh, disciples through our Bible school students in one church, that would affect the, the atmosphere of the church. You'd have to go to multiple services. You'd have to have 
increased volunteerism in children's ministry, in all the departments, because there would be no room. Just in two years, just from your Bible school students, let alone every member taking on the responsibility for souls. This is not some new modern-day technique for growing churches, because I've sought God concerning this. I studied the book of Acts while in Zambia from cover to cover, the first chapter to the end, and I formulated a paper that I called The Doctrine of Church Growth. The book of Acts is all about the church growing. 3,000 souls were saved on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the gospel. The coward, now filled with the Spirit, became bold in the gospel, and 3,000 souls were saved, added to the 120 that were gathered in the upper room. Immediately, the 120 were each discipling how many divide 3,000 by 120. They had to take on the responsibility to disciple that. Peter and John go to the temple. They raise the, the, the man at the gate called Beautiful. 5,000 men. It says 5,000 men. I wonder if that was 5,000 people or just the men, let alone all the women and children that gave their hearts to the Lord on that day. Then they start praying, fellowshipping, and sharing meals together. And the Bible says that the Lord added daily to the church. So they were very infectious with the gospel. And as a result, the word of God was going forth and more and more people were getting saved just through their testimony, joining them. Then uh, after the gate called Beautiful, they prayed and they said, Lord, would you stretch out your hand to heal? And the place was shaken. They were all filled with the Spirit and they began to speak the word with boldness. And as a result, the church began to multiply. Then persecution came with the uh, uh, martyrdom of Stephen, and the saints were scattered, and they went everywhere, and the church began to multiply in every place that they went, in Samaria, in Judea, and as they went to different nations. By the time the apostles left Jerusalem and started to go into India, into Africa, into Europe, the gospel was going throughout all the nations, and the church not only was growing daily, but churches were being multiplied. And yeah, we're living in an era with technology, communication, equipment, great buildings. But what's happened is we've lost our Pentecost fire, which is more than speaking in other tongues. Pentecost fire is the spirit of evangelism. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We read from verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. What is the word of faith which we preach? It was the gospel. When the Believers began to preach the gospel or the word of faith. The word in their mouth became the extension of the word of God. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we become the extension of God's voice. I implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. So we become the voice of God. And as we share His word, faith, from God 
comes through our word into the heart of the recipient of the gospel from faith to faith. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This scripture has shaped my life more than any other scripture. I've carried the word, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. It was first spoken of, of Jesus himself who came bringing the good news. But it speaks today of our, be, our feet being shod with the gospel of the preparation of peace. That everywhere we go, we carry the peace of God, the gospel, that brings man into reconciliation with God. God has already reconciled all men to himself, but they can't be reconciled unless someone proclaims the gospel. The, if I was God and I wanted to win humanity, I would just shout from heaven, people get saved now. I'm counting down when I get to 10, it's over, it's done. But then I'm not God. God chose that the gospel would be carried by men and women, imperfect men and women, empowered by a very perfect Holy Spirit, who would carry the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, and that this word would go from family to family, city to city, carried by simple people who were empowered. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. How was Jesus sent in the power of the Spirit? Stay in Jerusalem until you be empowered with, on, with, uh, with, with fire, with power from on high. And then you carry that gospel. The reason the church is not growing is very simple. It's not because God has not done His part. It's because the saints have not done our part. The gospel is not going out how it should. I ask the question, and I'm not going to ask it tonight, but I say to people, who have you reached this year? Who are you discipling right now? Let's get to the the the. The bottom line, don't blame the pastor, don't blame the evangelists, don't blame the politicians, don't blame Donald Trump or the Democrats or the FBI or whoever. 
They are not the problem. The problem is right here in this building. Draw a circle around yourself and say, who have I reached and who am I discipling? What am I doing to contribute to the growth of the kingdom and the expansion of the church? It's simple. That's the problem is we always want to blame someone else. People, well, where are the evangelists? Well, if you're not called to be an evangelist, Paul is very clear. He says, do the work of the evangelist. If you're not anointed as an evangelist, then do the work of the evangelist. Just like some people are gifted by God in hospitality, some people are gifted by God in generosity, some people are gifted in evangelism. But if you're not gifted, you still are to be generous, you're still to be hospitable, and you're still to proclaim the gospel. I know some people that are really gifted to prophesy. Some people are gifted to intercede. But we're all called to intercede, and Paul says all can prophesy. And so it's not limited to those who are gifted. There are certain things that, you know, everyone knows that the pastor is to care for the state of the flock, but you can also care for those around you. You don't have to leave all the caring to the pastors. You can care for someone. And so it's so easy. We want to blame, well, there's no evangelist. I was in a church in Illinois, and I said, how many evangelists are in this church? It was a large congregation, probably about 700 people, and no one stood up. I staggered back. I said, how many of you are doing the work of an evangelist? And one lady stood up who was about 85 years old, and she had served God in Central America from her youth. She remained single. She never married. She worked as a missionary her entire life, and now she had come home after expending her energy and strength in the harvest field. She had come back home. I was enraged. I was enraged, I believe, on behalf of, of God, that zeal for the house of God consuming. I looked at the pastor. I said, I thought we are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The work of ministry, thank you, the work of ministry is not just being on a camera, on a computer screen, or a soundboard, or being a greeter in the church. The primary ministry of the, of the believer is to minister to God in worship, and in prayer, and in our relationship with Him. And then flowing from that, our next area of ministry, every Christian is called into the ministry of reconciliation, the gospel. Every believer, someone say, well, what is my ministry? I'll tell you what your ministry is. As an overflow of your love relationship with God, you are a minister of reconciliation. You are an ambassador. Before you are to prophesy, pray, serve, usher, clean, security, sound, whatever we do for the few hours that we are together in the church, we live outside of this building. Our ministry is not really in this building. Our first ministry is outside of this building. I like it when people with churches, they have a sign as you're going out the door, you're now entering the mission field. So much of ministry today is confined to these four walls. 
This is where all the action takes place. Yet we spend a few hours of our time here. And what we spend here should be worship, training, equipping, interceding, so that when we're out there, we can do the work of ministry. The ministry gifts, the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And I'm saying, where is the work of ministry? One of my papers that I wrote while I was in Zambia, I'm always writing something. Uh, Besides the doctrine of church growth, I wrote the doctrine of works. Because everyone today is speaking about the doctrine of grace. And those who know me, you know I'm unashamedly, I share the doctrine of grace. I talk about the righteousness of faith that is in Christ Jesus, giving us uninterrupted access to God, that we are not saved by our works. However, we have forgotten that we are saved and empowered by God and called. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And I'm persuaded that many in the church today are lazy, indifferent, not plugged in, not engaged. They've become an audience. We have raised up a spiritual audience. They attend meetings. And we teach and we teach and we preach and we preach. Hours are spent in preparation. It goes in the one ear and out the other. I've gone, sometimes I go to the foyer and I stand and I greet people. And they'll say, that's a great word. And I'll say, what word? They've already forgotten all they remember is it was a great word, but they don't even know, they can't even remember from when they sat in the meeting five minutes later what that word was. Because people are just so caught up in everyday activities, so entangled in everyday life. We've become so busy that we have no sense of urgency. Why are you standing gazing into heaven? There's a work to be done. And when we do gather, it's with purpose to be equipped, to be trained, to be empowered, to be motivated, to be healed so that we can go do what needs to be done. Out there, we have a world to reach. America used to be very Christian, even 25 years ago. You know, when I got here 25 years ago, the average Christian would attend church on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, and a Wednesday night. The new statistics... Uh, If people attend church once a month, it's called faithfulness. And I'm thinking, how does that measure with not forsaking the assembling together? What's happened to Hebrews chapter 10 and I believe verse 25? What's happened to that verse? Well, we're busy. Well, then you're too busy. When you're too busy for God and for God's house and for prayer and for the Word and for the ministry, you need to reprioritize your life. It's not that we're too busy. We're distracted. We've lost our passion. We've lost our zeal. And the things that are important to God are not important to man. And as a result, people are perishing all around us, and we don't even care a rip anymore. Our hearts are untouched, no compassion, no brokenheartedness over the state of the church, the state of humanity, Business as usual. Life goes on. And it's like we've become calloused to the state of our nation, the state of our family, our friends, our colleagues, strangers that we will bump into. We're not even touched by their state. 
their heart state for eternity. It concerns me. How will they hear without a preacher? Well, I'm not called to preach. This isn't standing behind a pulpit preaching. This is talking about your life. A living epistle read by men, a carrier of God's word. By this time, you ought to be teachers. It doesn't mean that you need to stand behind a pulpit and teach. It means that your home has become a point where you're making disciples, that those that you've reached, you're teaching them the word. This was the biblical formula to grow the church, and then from your home, you'd bring them into the household of God, and they would be assimilated into everyday church life with passion and zeal, growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, and them themselves becoming contagious Christians, carrying the gospel in their zeal and passion. And so the state of the church has declined. Spirituality is not that important, but God is raising up a new generation. And I'll guarantee you this, in this house tonight, there are people that are, have felt exactly what I'm feeling. You're concerned about the state of the church. You're concerned about uh, souls that aren't being saved, people that aren't being healed, people that aren't getting their breakthrough. And you're tired of it. You want more. You know that you've been saved for something more than just attending a few meetings a month. You know that you carry an anointing. You carry a fire in your bones. That's something God wants to do through your life. How many of you have been feeling the stirrings for something more? You're frustrated. You're spiritually frustrated. I can't do another year of the same old, same old. We've got to have a breakthrough. How many of you have been feeling that stirring? Well, it's like we're standing gazing into heaven. Why are you standing gazing into heaven? It's time to put the... the uh, your lives into action. Your feet are already shod with the gospel. It's time to do something with what you've been given. There are Christians that have been saved 15 years that haven't led a soul to the Lord in the last 15 years. They know all the Bible promises. They know the word. When you quote a scripture, they're quoting it with you. But they've not gone outside of their comfort comfort zone. It's like they've become ashamed of the gospel. Now, it's not like they deny Jesus, but they're not skilled in the gospel. Like, oh, come to church with me. That's not sharing the gospel. It's the ability to sit down with someone and take them and discover where they are located in knowledge concerning the gospel, to locate where they are to find if they're far removed from the gospel or close to the gospel, and then to introduce them to the message, the word of faith, the faith of God through you that awakens faith in them, that brings them to a point when they say, what must I do to be saved? I led my first soul to the Lord about two weeks after being saved. I had an encounter with God. I knelt down to pray before going to bed as had become my new custom. Two weeks became a custom. South Africa is beautiful. Get a breeze from the ocean. It was summer. I had the windows open. It was before the new government. 
corruption, murder, violence. You could leave your home unlocked those days and you weren't broken into. Now you go live in South Africa, you've got to have burglar bars and barbed wire around your house and a dog and a security company. But those days I could still pray with an open window. I knelt down to pray before the open window and I said, Lord, I want all that you've got for my life. I went to sleep. At about 2 o'clock in the morning, the power of God hit me so hard, so powerful. At that stage, I didn't know the gospel. I didn't know the power of God. I didn't even know the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I was just a brand new convert. All I know is that before going into combat, I said, Lord, if you keep me alive, one day I'll serve you. I'll find you. I tried to find him so desperately before going into combat as a 17-year-old for the first time. Because I thought if I die, I'm not ready to meet God. And there's a difference between shooting with blanks and shooting with live rounds. It's different shooting at a target, but when that target shoots back at you, it's a different thing. You know you could die. And I certainly didn't feel ready to die. Number one, I was young. That, uh, I volunteered. I wasn't conscripted. I wanted to be in the military. I volunteered for combat. But the, I realized that it suddenly hit me that even though I volunteered and I want to be here, this is real. This isn't make-believe. This isn't some movie. I can die. And I, I realized, I don't even know who God is. I'd grown up in a godly home, a church, but I never knew Jesus. I used to go to church out of, I was forced to. The moment I'd finished my confirmation and had my First communion, I never wanted to go back to church. I thought, what a waste of time. People were dead. I used to to sit thinking, this can't be the God of the Bible. This can't be the same God that, that I hear the stories about because nothing is happening in this church. And I look at the people, I say, nodding off, and I'm thinking, this can't be the reality. When I came out of the army, the first thing I did is I went to, to, to the Eastern religions. I thought, well, that doesn't work. I've made a pledge to find God. He's certainly not in those churches. So I went into religions, and I, I started to, to seek God. And I'd go in, and I'd think, there's no God in this. Became a vegetarian. Got my Eastern incense and my sitting in my position there, oh, I'm thinking all I'm getting in this is stiff hips, and I need some meat, I need some food. And then I went to different cults, and I'd walk in, and I'd think, these people are weird. There's no God in this, and I'm thinking, God, I know you're there. You're the creator of the universe. I know this isn't some big bang, some big thing that just happened, and here I am, a life form with all this blood and veins and arteries and eyes and ears by mistake. There's a design in this. But who are you? A friend of mine gets saved in a youth gospel, and he's, he's a mature man. How he found himself in a youth meeting. Youth can make a difference to adults. He said, Leon, come to church with me. I said, no, I've tried that. It's dead. He said, no, come just once. I said, okay, under pressure. Takes me to a Pentecostal church. We stop outside. I said, these people are weird. 
Someone told me that they lock the doors. They put off the lights and they catch the Holy Spirit. That's what I was told about Pentecostals. I said, I'm not going in there. These people are weird. He said, listen, just come in for a few minutes. If you don't like it, you can leave. I said, I'll go in, but I'm going to sit in the back row. And when they start locking the doors, I'm running for my life. Because I was scared of a ghost. I, wasn't, I didn't even know Holy Ghost. Anything ghost freaked me out. I didn't understand the Holy Spirit. When anyone spoke about ghosts, I thought of Casper and weird spirits floating around. I thought, this is freaky. So I go into the church. The back row was full. I said to him, look, everyone's waiting to run. <laughs> we sat down. And to be honest... The people weren't very friendly. There wasn't much love that I could feel, but I, I've got to be 100% honest with you. Maybe I didn't fit the part. By that time, I'd come out of the army. I'd been out for some months. My hair was down here. As a surfer, I had my jeans and my flip-flops and T-shirt. In those days, people wore suits to church. When I walked in, they looked me up and down. I sat down, but I sensed the presence of God. I said, this is what I've been looking for. I wasn't looking for a denomination. I wasn't looking for stuff. I was looking for the presence of God. I felt like there's this part of me that needs to have the presence and the power of God. I said to my friend, I said, this is what I've been looking for. He said, are you going to give your heart to the Lord? I said to him, no. I said, my life's a mess. I'd come out the military messed up. I was a violent man. I tried the Eastern religions. I tried to be peaceful. It didn't work, so I just resorted back to my violence, my addictions. I said to him, I'm going to have to clean up my life. I didn't understand that God would clean me up. I thought I'm going to have to quit this, quit that, get things lined up. I said, I'm, I don't think I'm ready. I said to him, if this be the real God that I've made a promise to that I would serve, I said, I can't mess around with him. If I'm going to receive him, I'm going to have to make this genuine. I don't know if I'm ready for that. So I went home for a week. He said, well, I come to church with him. I did. And the next week, I gave my heart to the Lord. Two weeks later, I go to bed, and I say, God, I want all that you've got for me. I know nothing. I've had two weeks of reading the book of John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm powering through the New Testament, coloring everything that is important, and everything was important. I go to bed, and I wake up. power of God hits me, and I speak with other tongues. I did not even know what that was. I had no idea, even though I'd been in a Pentecostal church. They didn't speak in other tongues. They did raise their hands. I thought, wow, that's weird. They clapped their hands. I thought, this is freaky, man. I'd never seen that in church before. I, I, you know what I'm saying? It really freaked me out. But I sensed the presence of God. I knew the difference between religion and the presence of God. I said, that's what I want. 
when I knelt down to receive Jesus into my heart, the presence of God invaded my life. The Holy Spirit was in me. But that night I was empowered with the Spirit of Pentecost, the wind of God that blew in the upper room, blew in the upper room of my heart, and the fire that sat on each one of them sat on my heart. By 6 o'clock in the morning, I couldn't contain it. I woke up my next-door neighbor, Wendy LaRue. We used to hang together as um, surfers. Her boyfriend was my surfboard builder. Uh, I would go and stay at his house. We used to do the Eastern religion thing together. And, um, and, and so she was a good friend. I sent Bridge to go wake her up. I said, go wake up Wendy. Wendy came into the room wrapped in a blue nightgown, long hair, bedhead. Why am I here at 6 o'clock in the morning? I said, I've got to share the gospel. Acts 1.8 says, you shall receive power. I led my first soul to the Lord. Just about a month ago, guess who contacted me on Facebook? Wendy LaRue, my first convert, reconnected. But here's the thing is, as a result of that empowerment, I then started to share the gospel on the streets. I started to share the gospel in bars. I would go down to the harbor and meet with sailors. I'd go to the brothels and meet with prostitutes. I would go into the townships and to the villages of Africa, preaching the gospel, leading souls to the Lord as a, as a lifestyle. At this stage, I'm not ordained. I'm, I don't have a, the back end. I'm, the, the church still doesn't like me because I haven't cut my hair. I'm still wearing jeans. I'm still wearing them now, 45 years later. Still freaking religious minds out. It's okay. I don't mind. Even when I pastored my first church, my second church, planted my 65 churches, opened my first Bible schools, I've been pressing for this one thing. Every Christian is to be empowered with the spirit of Pentecost and become a soul winner, to win souls. The Bible says he who wins souls is wise. We need some people to get the soul winner's crown, to become ardent soul winners, and uh, to change our world. Every person you come into contact, their eternity is in your hands. I often think of that scripture that their blood would be on your hands. Does that ever concern you? that there's a generation whose blood is on our hands. Uh, there was an, a mission statement that I read many years ago. This generation of saints is responsible for this generation of sinners. How will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear unless they're sent? How are we sent? In the way the Father has sent me, so send I you. How was Jesus sent? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The anointing is so that we can preach the gospel to the poor. Thank God for the gifts of the Spirit, the present working power of God. But primarily, you shall receive power and you will be my witnesses. It's for the gospel. The Holy Spirit is a soul-winning spirit. I'm calling the saints in this hour to be engaged in the harvest with passion, with passion. 
this year, my entire message, every church I'm going to, is we've got to raise up a generation of soul winners. I'm not going to have another year where I go into churches and say, how many of you have been saved in the last five years and see one or two hands raised? To me, it's an insult to the cross. It's an insult to the power of the Spirit that indwells us and empowers us for the harvest. I believe that every Christian should take this seriously. How will they hear without a preacher? In other words, they can't hear unless we say. And you may say, well, I've told them, but did you tell them with skill? Have you been trained in soul winning? It's not just God loves you. You've got to share the cross. You've got to share what the blood has accomplished. The Bible says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There is a gospel. There is a message. I'm not ashamed of that message. For the, the righteousness of God is revealed in that from faith to faith. It reveals that man can be reconciled to God, can stand without guilt, without nakedness, without shame can stand in righteousness and approach the throne of God, Abba Father, coming without embarrassment, without nakedness, without performance. Powerful. How many of you would like to win a soul this year? Of course. How many of you would like to win a soul this week? <laughs> of course. We should. Because your life can affect someone's eternity. If we would embrace this word, we may not be many in this building tonight, but 120 reached 3,000 in their first meeting. One miracle later, 5,000. Daily growth. You understand? It, though it starts small, it expands so fast. The little leaven leavens the whole batch. The leaven of sin spreads quickly. The leaven of passion spreads quickly. The leaven of the gospel spreads quickly. We can infect an entire region. I say this with humility because I've been into villages and into places where there have been no churches. And now in those places, there are churches. I've baptized the first converts. I've built the leadership, the eldership for those churches. I've worked and labored in those regions that were in conflict, war, danger, putting my life at risk. But the fruit speaks for eternity. You understand? If it works there, it works here. I preach the gospel with power in those villages, but it works in America. Our neighbors, our friends, our family can be reached. This is not a difficult task. This is not an impossible task. It will only become more difficult if we delay the call of God that is upon the church today to do something about what needs to be done. Every Christian is called to the harvest field. There is a scripture that I used to preach on. The laborers are few. The laborers are not few. They're many. I want to close with a scripture and then I'm done. But go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. 
We'll read just six verses. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Let me put this to you in everyday language. Every one of you is called by God. If you're saved, you're called by God. Everyone is to have the servant heart of Jesus. Paul, a bond servant. Before you have a ministry, you have the heart of a servant. Let this attitude be in you. What attitude? The attitude of a servant that was found in Jesus. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Whatever you're gifting, whatever you're calling, everyone is uniquely called. But notice, separated to the gospel of God. Every saint is separated from the world to the gospel. Repentance is not just turning your back on sin. It is turning your life to the purpose of God. And what is the purpose of God? That we represent God in our region with the gospel. We are separated by God, for God, and for the gospel. The blood separates us from sin. And the Holy Spirit separates us for the gospel. Every instrument had to be sprinkled with blood and oil. Blood separates from sin and oil sets you apart for holy living and the service of God. Paul was separated to the gospel. The first thing Paul did after being filled with the Spirit when Ananias came and baptized him, laid hands for him to receive the Spirit, immediately he began to preach the gospel in the synagogues. He was not an apostle at that stage. He didn't even understand apostleship. You understand, he was a brand new believer. All he did, he understood he was separated for the gospel. Immediately, he began to preach the gospel. He was three days after the Damascus Road encounter. He has his meal. He strengthens his body. He's been baptized. Hands have been laid upon him to receive the Spirit of God. And immediately he begins to preach the gospel. You don't have to have two years of Bible school to preach the gospel. But what you do need is passion. You do need love. You do need obedience to the voice of God. Just like Paul had an encounter on the Damascus Road, every one of you that is born again has had an encounter with God. Yours may not have been to see a bright shining light and to hear an audible voice, but you are no less called than the Apostle Paul. Everyone is called by God. Everyone is anointed by God. Everyone is gifted by God. Everyone is separated to the gospel. Everyone. It's the responsibility of every believer. And so, just like he says, that he was separated for the gospel, so we are separated for the gospel. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 14, Paul says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, so as much as in me I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. I, I asked myself when I read this, 
obviously, we are not paying for our salvation by our works. When he says, I am a debtor, he's saying, I am under obligation. I am under obligation because I have tasted the grace of God. I must communicate the gospel to those who have not heard. I am a debtor. I am under obligation. By virtue of what I have received and enjoy, I have a responsibility for people, for others. Just like Paul was a debtor, so we ought to live with a sense of indebtedness to our generation. But notice he says, so as much as in me, what's in him? The passion, the zeal, the product of grace, the product of salvation. I am ready to preach the gospel. Are you ready to preach the gospel? What makes us ready to preach the gospel? That we have tasted the goodness of God. That we are a new creation. That we are born of God. That we have the indwelling of the Spirit and the empowerment of the Spirit. For the gospel, I'm ready to preach. I was ready to preach before I was skilled to preach. One day I was preaching on the street. We have a valley right where I worked as a professional lifeguard. The beach is Yumwood underneath and on top is a road and there's a place called Happy Valley and I'm standing outside Happy Valley it's decorated with colored lights, and people would come to look at the lights, and I'm standing preaching the gospel. And a believer walked up to me and said, you don't know what you're doing. I said, I know. I've been saved a few weeks. I said, would you come show me? He said, I'm too busy. So as he walked away, I waved to him. I said, well, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing until someone will one day help me. I found very few people willing to help me preach the gospel. But 45 years later, I'm still preaching the gospel. I may know a little more than I knew back then, but I have not lost that fire that I had when I first believed. I have two doctorates. I'm not preaching the gospel because I have doctorates. I have Bible education. I've, besides, written over 30 books. I've read hundreds of books, studied hundreds of books, it's not because I've studied and written. It's because I have a fire shut inside of me. You understand? It's not my academic abilities, my theological training. It's the passion. When you lack passion, you don't do anything about the state of your world. It's not your diploma. Your ordination doesn't qualify you. It merely recognizes that you have passion that you're doing something about the call of God upon your life. Your ordination doesn't give you the right to preach the gospel. It acknowledges that you're preaching the gospel. We all have to start somewhere. You don't know what you're doing. I know that I'm going to do something about my generation. What about you? Let's stand and pray. How many of you saw that movie, Hacksaw Ridge? Let me see your hands. You guys go to movies a lot. I always ask you that. You still raise your hands, even though you know it's a trick question. Carnal people going to movies. I loved that movie. It was very violent. It freaked me out because of what I've done in my own life and what I've seen in my own life. It was horrendous. It had a terrible effect upon me. But, 
I love that man's spirit, his courage. You know, in the one battle, I think it was in Okinawa, that he rescued 75 wounded soldiers, 75 people. And he lowered them over that 400-foot cliff single-handedly. 75 people lowered that his hands in the movie you saw. It doesn't show that it was 75. He kept saying, one more, Lord, one more, Lord. You know, that one man, he was given the medal of honor for his valor. Tremendous. Three purple hearts, bronze cross with the crest, different awards that he was given. But you know what I love about him is that single-handedly he made a difference to in just one battle, 75 lives. And I thought, you know, Barnabas made a difference to the church single-handedly. He won souls to the Lord. There is the soul winner's crown, just like he got the medal of valor. You can win 75 people to the Lord. If he could go in under enemy fire. There was one stage where he was, I think it was eight feet away from the enemy, and they were throwing grenades and shooting eight feet, treating a wounded, eight feet away. We are in a war zone going to rescue people, to lower them over the edge under enemy fire to a place of safety and healing and deliverance. You understand? We are just like him, doing a work in a war zone. He made a difference in one battle to 75 lives. When I saw that movie, I thought, I want to make a difference to some lives. He did it in a war zone. We can do it for souls. Through our prayers, through our availability, in the face of enemy fire, going in, and reaching souls, and saving some. How many of you want to get the soul winner's crown? I want to pray for you tonight, that God would touch your life, that God would change your life, that the zeal for the things of God would be awakened in you. If you've lost your zeal for souls, and tonight you really, 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 really want to do something about it, raise both hands. And say to God, here I am, send me. I make myself available to you. I give my heart to you. Even in the face of enemy fire, in the face of conflict, in the face of opposition, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not embarrassed by you. I'm not embarrassed about the cross. I'm not embarrassed about your message that rescues people. And I'm saying, God, here I am. I give my life to you for something bigger than myself. That as a result of my message, the gospel in my mouth, that the faith of God will be released through me to someone else. And that their eternity will be affected by my life. And so, God, I give my heart to you for this purpose, that you would use me. Even this week, oh God, would you please give each one of us an opportunity to share the gospel. 
that this message will not be forgotten, but God, this week, even tomorrow, that opportunities, doors of favor and opportunity be open for us to share the gospel. Lord, we bring our hearts before you and we ask you to cleanse us from selfishness, from indifference, from carnality, from passionless living. We ask, O oh God, that you would reignite the fire of first love in our hearts, that we would do those things we first did when we believed. We read your word. We memorized your word. We prayed. We fasted. We went to church whenever the doors were opened. We were there, and we shared with, without embarrassment, maybe not with, a, with skill, but without embarrassment, we shared the gospel. And even when we were rejected, we were not put off, but we kept on. And then God's stuff began to clutter our lives. We were pulled away and distracted. But God, I pray that you put the fire of first love back in our hearts, that we do those things we did at first, and as a result, lives of loved ones, family, friends, and strangers, both in this nation and in the nations, would be affected by our praying, by our giving, by our going, by our sharing, that God, our world, would feel the impact of our lives. Just as David served his generation, God, we want to serve our generation by the will of God, by sharing the gospel. And so we make ourselves available to you. We give our hearts to you afresh and anew, and we say, our lives are in your hand, O oh God. Touch us, fill us, change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to hand over to Pastor Bob to close, and then I will be available to pray with people who would like to come forward for the laying on of hands. I've exceeded my time by a lot, but I get this opportunity once a year that I come, and if I am to be an apostolic voice to this church, I'm certainly going to use that grace to make sure that we get this thing done. So, Pastor, over to you, and then I'll be available to pray for okay. souls. Have you been blessed? Let's give the Lord a hand. So what we're going to do, we're going to dismiss, and those who would like to come down and receive prayer, ask you to come down. We're going to remove this first row. Ushers, we can remove the first row here. <clears throat> we want to make sure we got plenty of room. Yes, that's, that's bow your heads if you're not moving a chair right now. <laughs> and maybe you've never accepted the Lord and your heart's been stirred and God's speaking to you. And you're ready to make a decision for Christ. Let's just bow our heads. I'm looking around. That's you. I want you to just lift your hand and say, that's me. I'm ready to make a decision to go all out and live for God.
turning my life over to you, Lord. No restraints. Full. Full for you. That Jesus died for you. He shed his blood for you. And he says to believe that he was raised from the dead. You believe in your heart. And you confess this with your mouth. You'll be saved. You'll belong to him and you'll live. Then you live for him. You follow him. No one look around and say, that's me. I want you to lift your hand high and we'll pray together. Anyone in this place? Or maybe you prayed this before, but you realize today you're lukewarm. You need to come back home. The fire just hasn't been burning. But right now, you know the Lord's speaking to you. If that's you, I want you to lift your hand. Just be bold and say, that's me. I need the fire to burn. Yes. Anyone else? I'm ready. I'm ready for that. Ready for that. Let's all say this. Dear God, thank you for Jesus who died for me, went to the cross, went down to the grave, took my sin, took my shame because he loves me. He did it all for me. But he was raised up from the dead. And now I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. And now I'm saved. And for that one and there was a couple others who you want the fire to burn again, say, God, I return. Let's all say it. I return back to you. I return to my first love. And I start doing those things again that I did in the beginning. And the joy of my salvation and my joy and love for you, Lord, rises up again and consumes me. I yield to the Spirit of God. Set me on fire, God. Set me on fire, God. I'm on burn for you. I'm not going to be mediocre. I'm going to be radical. I'm going to be on fire for you. I'm going to win souls. I'm not going to be quiet anymore. I'm going to speak out. I'm going to love people. And your Holy Spirit, Lord, will be right there with me, touching and ministering to these. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277. Down